Welcome to Cyberside Chats from Epic, a global legal services provider. Hosted by Jarek Beeson, Chief Information Security Officer at Epic, Cyberside Chats is where professionals come to hear CISO and industry leader insights on the latest news and trends for cybersecurity and privacy in the legal industry. Welcome to Epic Cyberside Chat, where we are excited to be developing content for and by the legal and privacy industries. Now, there's a lot of cybersecurity content in media, but we believe there's a gap when it comes to the legal industry. We're seeking to address that with our show. My name is Jarek Beeson. I'm a Senior Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer over at Epic, and I will be your host. We are almost half a year into this podcast experiment, and I'm calling it an experiment because, you know, cybersecurity content tailored for the legal industry is really hard to come by. So this is somewhat uncharted territory. Shoot us an email or drop a comment. Let us know what you think, if there are any other topics you want us to cover. Today, our topic is incident response, and our guest has specialized in it for a very long time. Today, we're chatting with Meg Hargrove. Megan Hargrove is the Global Cybersecurity Incident Response Manager at Tech Data Corporation. She has a Master's of Science in Cybersecurity. She holds a CISSP and Security Plus certification. Along with her passion for incident response, she's a subject matter expert in SAP security, Having been selected to speak at SAP's Sapphire Now conference, she is an advocate for creating educational cybersecurity videos on YouTube. You should check out her channel. She has a lot of content. That's kind of how we found her. She also volunteers to help mentor college students get their first job in cybersecurity, and she participates in ISC Squared's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Task Force. Megan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Garrick. I'm excited to be here. Right on, right on. Is there anything at yourself that I didn't share that you would want to? I mean, just to reiterate, I have a lot of experience specifically working with the legal privacy and, you know, various teams within large Fortune 100 organizations. So I think that brings a lot of context to what we'll be speaking about today. Because I am the global incident response manager for the company, I have for several years now been overseeing all of the incidents for tech data, which I like to joke is a Fortune 100 company no one's ever heard of. So I think that brings a lot of background to my experience to kind of provide a little bit more information on where I'll be speaking from. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'm pretty sure somebody's Googling tech data right now, now that you've said that. Absolutely. So our topic is incident response, and incidents are happening so frequently these days. I mean, it seems like the country and every organization is in a constant state of incident response. So we really thought that this was an app topic, especially for now. And for those that aren't familiar with our show, we choose an article to talk about. And then me and the guest, Megan, in this case, we just go a little bit deeper. And the article that we're looking at is from Risk Management Magazine and is titled The Legal Issues in Cyber Incident Response. As always, the link to the article is going to be in the show notes for anyone that wants to take a read for themselves. Megan, I looked at it. I read the article. I thought it was insightful. I thought it was intuitive. And it breaks down incident response phases into the specific phases that incidents you know, should be broken down to per you know, various best practices. But it also calls out the legal considerations at each phase. Is it just that simple? Or do you think incident response needs to be looked at differently from legal? So I really enjoyed the article that we're referencing. I thought it was, you know, very intuitive and it did well explain what kind of responses the legal team gives at each phase throughout incident response. I did, however, think that one thing was missing, and that was the fact that the article didn't cover a very large and important factor in incident response, 
which is going to be the proactive incident response, the preparation for incidents. The, the article didn't cover this. And frankly, I like to joke that there's two parts to incident response. There's the part before the incident happens, and then there's the part after the incident happens. And I think a lot of when incident responders need to work with the legal team is going to happen in that first segment before the incident happens. I fully believe that if incident response teams or even just general cybersecurity teams, whether it's a security operations center or if you do have specialized incident responders, if those personnel get to work with the legal team before an incident happens and they have set plans and plates, which I know we'll discuss a little bit more later, I really think this is going to make a huge difference on when an incident does happen. I think that the article missed out on that part, but other than that, the phases that the article discussed and how adept it was at explaining how the legal team interacts with the incident responders at each phase, I thought that was very accurately laid out. You do talk about the the core part of incident response is preparation, right? Because the way you prepare will dictate how you truly respond in the end. So what are some components of the preparation phase that, that legal needs to be involved with? Right. That's a great question, Jarek. One of the things that I would highly suggest the legal team gets involved with are tabletop exercises. These highly contingent upon the size of your organization, the prevalence of incidents you're seeing, and kind of what you have at risk, what your stakeholders want. But generally, you're going to want to hold tabletop exercises, if not every quarter, then at least twice a year. And that's just to consider best practice so that your incident response teams, as well as your legal, your privacy, your HR, whoever else could possibly be involved in an incident, you can all go through an incident together, sit down together, whether it's on Zoom or in person, and discuss how you want to handle these incidents. Oftentimes, I'm seeing that the legal and privacy teams are not being involved in these tabletop exercises, and I think that's a really big deficiency nowadays. I think when your incident responders are well-connected, have good rapport, have a good escalation path on who to contact with legal when an incident does happen, this is going to make all the difference when an actual incident happens. So if we start bridging that gap before the incident happens between legal and incident response, you're going to see a much more organized and better response when the incident does happen. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And there are definitely components where legal has to get involved. And the last thing that you want is for them to kind of be figuring it out on the fly when an incident right. is actually happening and tensions are high and, and everything else. So if someone is trying to convince legal, because it sounds like legal isn't always brought to the table. So there, there has to be some justification for legal to be brought to the table. And in theory, your tabletop exercises are really validating if your existing processes are sufficient. And you look down the list of all the different components of your processes and your policies and your, your playbooks, and you say, I need someone from communications, I need someone from the business unit here, I need someone from IT, and so forth. And if legal isn't brought to bear, does that mean legal isn't actually built into the processes typically as well? Yeah, I think that's a great point you make. If the legal team isn't already having the ability to review your incident response procedures, which is actually a point I wanted to bring up later, I think that's a huge gap. I think definitely your legal team should be reviewing all of the documentation that you have regarding incident response, because oftentimes your incident response personnel, they're going to be a little bit more technical and not necessarily so focused on the applicable laws and regulations to the areas that your business is operating within. The legal team, the attorneys, legal counsel, they're all going to have that eye, which is going to be a lot more honed in 
on what does the incident response documentation need to contain? What uh, timeframes need to be noted in the incident response procedures in regards to GDPR or specifically Canada has some strict regulations when it comes to reporting. These are all things that incident responders aren't necessarily going to be apprised of as well as the legal team would. So absolutely agree with you. The legal team should be reviewing this documentation and be involved from the get-go. All right, so I think the operative words were laws and regulations. That's that's mm -hmm. where legal shines. And there are definitely components in the, the shining example is, you know, re uh, reporting uh, timeframes. Those right. have to align with the various regulations and privacy uh, statutes that are out there. So is, is that the core area where legal needs to be involved when it comes to incident response prep, or are there other areas that they should be considering as well? I think another large area that's often overlooked is going to be communications that should be sent out to consumers or customers in regards to the business. So even though you may not be breaking any laws or regulations when you do encounter an incident, it's always great to get input from the legal team on their personal opinion of whether communications about an incident should be communicated and how those communications should be sent out to the specific consumers and customers when an incident happens. Like I mentioned, even though you might not be actually breaking a law or some kind of regulation, sometimes there's that fine line where you want to make sure to cover your company, keep everything good on your checklist. That way, if a customer, whoever comes back and they inquire about it, you can say, yes, I took the appropriate measures. I did so and so. And you're covered from a legal perspective as well. Yeah, I agree. Communications are probably, when it comes to public perception of how you handled an incident, the, the most important component, even more important than remediating the incident in a timely fashion. It's what have you told people, what level of confidence have you given them that you understand what has occurred and that you have it under control? One of the things that I recommend uh, to anyone, and I've, I've had my team do it, is we've built out templates for the different types of communications so you're not trying to figure it out during the incident because it could take you hours to come up with the exact wording that you want to say, and those hours are better spent dealing with the incident or, you know, updating customers or wh wh whatever it may be, not necessarily writing the email. Is is your is your perspective that legal should be involved in defining how communications are being done during an incident, before an incident, or both? Absolutely, I think both. I think, like you mentioned, anything that can be created ahead of time, that can be a pre-canned template that just needs some minor adjustments contingent upon the severity or the kind of incident. Absolutely, that's a huge help if you're not spending those hours working with your communications team, your legal team, and the various stakeholders to try to craft something that appeases everyone involved. But again, like we mentioned during the incident, I also think it's imperative to keep the legal team apprised of communications. Obviously, wording that's sent out to consumers is going to be really important too. We all know that by just changing one simple word in a communication, that can completely change the entire meaning of something. And obviously, at the end of the day, even though you want to be honest and forefront with what's going on, you do want to protect yourself and your company as well. And I think the legal team is obviously best suited to help ensure that that's happening. So when they're looking at communications, do you see legal's role in the external communications and the internal or just the external? I see it in both because it depends on the kind of incident, right? You could also have an incident that perhaps you're leaking the social security numbers of everyone within your company. Then, of course, you also want to have your attorneys and your legal counsel involved so that they can help you discern how to best approach that in communications to your internal colleagues. 
absolutely. I think it's important regardless of who the affected personnel is. I agree. There are so many types of scenarios, so sometimes it's hard to plan for every single one accordingly. But having the tabletop, going back to your point around the tabletop, one, it just reminds legal, you have a role in this. Don't don't think we're going to have an incident and you're going to watch from the sidelines, but also make your life easier, make our life easier, participate early so that we can depend on that muscle memory when when the incident occurs. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit more about the tabletop. When you're looking at a tabletop, do you create tabletops that will require legal and won't require legal and only bring them to one? Or are you thinking more along the lines of legal should just be aware of how we're going to handle things so that they're not learning on the go? It really depends what resources you have available during your tabletops. Of course, the legal teams are very busy people and they're not just going to be handling legal matters that revolve around IT or information security. However, I do think that collaborating with them at least once or twice a year, that way they can be apprised of any newly updated factors involved in the incident response procedures, or even if you add new members onto your IT security or incident response team. I fully believe that if you have that built up rapport ahead of time where everyone kind of has a sense of, I know this is the director of legal, I know this is the manager of incident response, and they know who to reach out to and when to reach out to, that's going to be a game changer for when an incident does happen. Got it, got it. So we've honed in on, okay, preparation was missing. What about the other phases uh, of an incident? Do you, do you feel as if legal has a, a role that's important or imminent in any of those phases? Yeah, absolutely. I think most importantly, the detection phase, most notably, is going to be obviously relevant, contingent upon what region the incident is occurring in and the severity of the incident, as well as the impact, who's being impacted. If it's just a small incident and you know that there's little likelihood that it's going to go to litigation in court, then perhaps you don't need legal involved. But if you're looking at something that's going to involve attorney-client privilege and you know there's a high possibility that uh, the the feds are going to be involved or the government or anything of the sort, then from the get-go of learning about the incident, I want my legal team involved. I don't want to leave anything to chance. I didn't go to law school. I don't know nearly as much as the legal personnel do. So I want their advisement. I'd much rather be proactive about it and perhaps, you know, take an hour or two of their time getting an opinion than not get their opinion and regret it later on, further on in the incident response process. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And to your point, I didn't go to law school. I've Seen enough contracts to feel like I probably could make it past a semester maybe in law school, but uh, I, I do agree with you there. And t- to that point as well, when an incident is confirmed, I like to have my legal team look at every contract of every potential customer that is part of the incident because some contracts are standard MSAs and they have our language and we know exactly what's expected. But some customers that are more mature, they have expectations. Notify me within 24 hours, even if the regulation says notify me within 72 hours, as an example. Um, And I want to make sure that they are scouring the contracts, they understand the T's and C's and expectations. Um, And I find that that step typically happens much later in the process after the fact and not during the possibility of determining, you know, who who is exposed and who isn't exposed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think 
a really important one is that the attorney-client privilege be enacted as soon as you know that there's an incident that could be going to litigation. I want to ensure that my incident response personnel and anyone who's going to be touching or viewing any information related to the case that could possibly end up in a courtroom knows that they need to be marking the subject of their emails with ACP or any documents are going to be encrypted appropriately and stored in a manner that's going to uphold the highest form of ACP so everyone's protected. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just the last part of it is, you know, if forensics are necessary, depending on what level of forensics is needed, depending on if legal hold is needed on an account, definitely going to be an element of getting legal sign off. So they should have experience, you know, with that decision criteria to to provide that sign off or not as well. Well, Megan, thank you for kind of talking about a subject that I don't think is talked about enough. And bringing this to our to our attention to to have this conversation because I, I do agree, legal has has a role in pretty much every phase of an incident, especially anything major, and getting them to the table early, going through tabletop exercises, which we may have another episode, guys, on just tabletop exercises, how to do them, what to include in them. Of course, now we know legal has to be there, but there are others that need to be there as well. Well, I know that you had a topic that you wanted to talk about. And for those that aren't familiar with our show, we also have the latter part of our show. It's called the Ask the CISO Round, where the interviewee gets to become the interviewer. I know you have something you want to talk about. What you got? Yeah, absolutely. So I thought the question that I came up with was really pertinent to the discussion we had earlier in the conversation. And I always like to reference back to the quote that everyone's heard 10,000 times, and that is, there are companies that have been breached, and there are the companies that have been breached, but they don't know it yet. And my curiosity is, especially after what's been in the news so recently, what with solar winds and the recent uh, pipeline attack with the ransomware, consumers and the general population are so often seeing these data breaches happen, and they're getting letters in the mail at least once or twice a year saying, hey, we've accidentally leaked your data. Do you think there's going to become a point in time where the general population becomes desensitized to their information being leaked? And if so, how do you think that's going to impact the cybersecurity industry as well as the general population? Great, great question. And I think just to bring the quote down to even more layman's terms, this is a very important quote, and it's something that's been resonating in the security industry for a long time, but I don't think it's made it to the general population just yet. The, the quote is effectively saying, everybody has been breached. Two types of companies, those that know they have and those that don't know they have. And the reality is the latter is so much worse, but the ones that know they have have faced the repercussions. When I look at your question, I think the conversation is different based off of the type of organization you are. If you're a B2B organization, you're going to have one view of it versus a B2C organization. B2B being business to business, your primary customer is another organization and business to consumer is, you know, your standard retail or anything where you're dealing directly with, with consumers. And I think the public perception, tolerance, and even in some cases, their indifference to breaches, it's changed over time. As you noted, you know, back when it was new or infrequent, it seemed like a big deal and almost an invasion of something that was once considered private. But over time, the breaches have become so frequent and the general consumers are actually numb to it. You know, generally speaking, I think we've all at this point been signed up for at least one credit monitoring service, if not two or three, hopefully not four. 
We've all received a letter in the mail that informs us that yet another exposure of our sensitive data has taken place. We've all received that new credit card that just showed up because the last credit card was potentially compromised. This is all the same data consistently every single time. It's not a new social security number, right? So people realize at this point that my data is in someone's hands that it shouldn't be at this point. And because of that, every new occurrence, it doesn't add any risk to my life. You know, a good tolerance of that is take a look at the last five really big data breaches. All those companies probably took a short dip in their stock prices right after. But if you look today, those customers have come back, the trust is restored, and they may be at all-time high stock prices. That's in the business consumer world. I think there's just a little bit more of an understanding and a tolerance. But if you look in the business-to-business world, the appetite for risk is so much lower. And I would argue that organizations are more sensitive to breaches than ever before. Consumers, you know, they don't send you a two to 300 question questionnaire before they swipe their credit card. But a business will definitely do that. In fact, there is some level of risk analysis depending on the maturity of the organization before entering partnerships or putting pen to paper on contracts. So that puts pressure on legal to build the right terms and conditions in the contracts, you know, to adequately protect themselves. And when legal has to get involved, there is definitely no lack of sensitivity. But you brought up the Colonial Pipeline attack, and I think that was a game changer. It was a game changer because ransomware, you feel the immediate impact. And it could include theft of data as well. But once again, the theft of data part isn't what people are really talking about. It's the damage that's being done. And the difference with ransomware is the damage is felt immediately. When it comes to a data breach, you may never feel the ramifications of it, especially if you have all the credit services and so forth. So to, to really answer your question directly, I really think it depends on the industry. But I think ransomware has kind of overlaid both of those industries, and there is a new heightened sense of urgency. There's a new executive order that we just talked about on one of our previous episodes uh, from Joe Biden. And, you know, the the federal government has said that ransomware is one of their number one threats. There's all kinds of threats out there. Ransomware is up there in the top threats. So sensitivity is definitely high for, for those reasons. If the attackers stop trying to destroy systems and ransom them and they go back to just stealing data, I think what you just said is going to continue to resonate and it's going to be a, a, a much lower sensitivity level. Yeah, that was a great, great um, explanation. And that kind of leads to two thoughts in my mind. My first is an example of how the Colonial Pipeline specifically affected myself. And I think I think this was such a huge and notable incident because it directly affected the people. And I was one of them. I recently just moved back from Europe to the States and it was during this Colonial Pipeline where we were seeing the effects of gas not being available. Well, I had a seven hour drive I needed to make from the airport to my home and there was no gas anywhere. So it just goes back to what you're saying. When the attack and the incident directly affects the people, and it's not so much about information, but an immediate effect that really is noticeable by the population, that's where it's going to become so much more important. And that's where people are really going to begin caring about it. 
my follow-up question to what we discussed would be specifically regarding the business to consumer. Do you think that the business consumer organizations are going to start spending less money on cybersecurity tools or cybersecurity personnel because they have a little bit higher of risk acceptance when it comes to incidents occurring because they're probably not going to lose their consumer base due to the desensitization? Yeah, that's, oh, that is a... That is a question that I'm going to try to be as politically correct about as possible here, because a lot of these organizations have CISSPs and people that took ethical oaths and so forth. But the the reality is, is if you put the onus purely on the organization to do what's right when it comes to cybersecurity, history has shown it won't happen. Mm-hmm. So regulation is what changes that. And I think we may see less of a focus on cybersecurity potentially at some point in time when it no longer impacts your business. But now we're seeing the rise of privacy. And there is a intersection of privacy and cybersecurity that to the layman is the exact same thing, right? I don't care if it was a cyber breach that resulted or the privacy breach that resulted. My stuff was now, you know, compromised. And though people are not as sensitive to it, the GDPR, the CCPA, I think 20 states have legislation on the table and another 20 or more countries have potential legislation on the table. That is what's going to result in a difference. If you look at these huge $100 million, billion dollar fines that are hitting tech companies, those are going to eventually start to trickle down to smaller organizations who have, in many cases, been immune to these large fines. And once it starts hitting your SMBs and your organizations that are not in the tech industry, we'll see a renewed focus on privacy at the very least. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Oftentimes, it's not the people who understand the severity of the incident and what can happen when their data ends up on the dark web. But our governments and our state legislatures, they are aware of it. They know the effects of it. And thankfully, a lot of them are making the moves to put in the appropriate laws and regulations to protect the people. So I think that was a really adept answer that will be applicable in the future, certainly. I'll add, I I did consulting, so I've seen a lot of organizations. So I've worked for enough that no one can pinpoint who this organization is. But the fines have to be large enough. I've worked Mm -hmm. for, I've supported or contracted or, you know, for an organization that decided that the fine was smaller than the amount of money that it would take to fix the problem. So it was an acceptable risk to pay the fine on a monthly or annual basis versus Mm -hmm. the huge investment necessary to fix the issue. If that continues to be the case, it's a risk management decision, which is what all business is, and organizations are going to choose the one that hits the bottom line the least. Right. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of these laws and regulations that are being proposed stating that a specific percent of profits is going to be the rule of thumb nowadays instead of having a flat fee of, for example, 10000 or 500000 What is a lot of money to one company could be pennies to the dollar for another company. So. Absolutely. I think GDPR hits the head on the nail where it states a percentage of what needs to be paid. And I think we're going to see that happening a lot more often in the upcoming laws and regulations being passed. We're seeing organizations sitting back and watching and hoping they aren't the example, but someone will be made an example of. And then we're going to see just a snowball downhill of organizations reaching out to consultancies and trying to hire even more people that don't exist to to address some of these problems. Right. I completely agree. Well, Megan, 
this conversation was was awesome. It was all that I expected and more. Thank you for bringing to bear some questions that need to be asked but aren't necessarily asked enough. At the end of our show, we like to ask a single question that's related to the area of expertise of the of the guest and given the George's instant response. What are some things that you think legal can do today? If I'm a legal professional, I'm a law firm, I'm a general counsel, and security hasn't asked me to come to the table, what are some things you think that they can do today to better prepare for incidents? Great question, and it's an easy one. I don't think it's a time-consuming one. I think if your incident response team has not approached your legal team or you as an organization to kind of build up that rapport and get the ball flowing between the two, some of the easy and quick wins provide an escalation path to the incident response team. That way they know exactly who to reach out to, provide contact information. Usually if you provide that hierarchical tree where it says, hey, if you know person X isn't available, then go to person Y, that's incredibly helpful. It's also a great idea to provide instructions and documentation on how to reach someone in legal should there be an incident that occurs on the weekend or out of business hours. If it's a time-sensitive incident, uh, like we've discussed earlier regarding GDPR or specific states and uh, countries in the West, then you don't want to wait for someone from legal to wake up or for someone from legal to respond on a Monday morning. There needs to be some sort of ability, whether it's just the incident response manager who has the ability to reach someone on the legal team. There needs to be a very clear and dry cut documentation that states this is how you reach us if there is an emergency. I would also really recommend having those pre-canned templates like we discussed earlier, where it outlines, this is where you need to start using attorney-client privilege. This is where you need to start putting that titling the subject of your emails. If you can't reach someone from legal, these are some of the first steps you should be taking to ensure you're doing and handling your incidents appropriately so that the organization and all the stakeholders are appropriately protected. I think this requires very little collaboration between incident response and legal. I think it's something the legal team can proactively do to give to the incident response team. And it's a really quick win that's going to have a big impact when an incident does happen. I think that is perfect advice. If I were to add one thing to that, provide some level of criteria for when you need to reach out to legal. Right? If you give me all the paths on how to, but I don't ever know when I need to, then I may never actually do it. Uh, yeah. But uh Thank you, Megan, once again, for that last piece of wisdom. Hopefully everyone takes note and legal, cyber, get together, collaborate, do more, be better. Thank you. Appreciate your time, Meg. Thanks so much, Derek. Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions or ideas from today's show, share them with us by emailing cyberside at epicglobal.com. Don't forget to follow us on socials. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for Epic Global. Until next time, stay cyber smart. <laughs>